You are listening to Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 FMLP, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. What's interesting about this is they had an atomic bomb. Uh, They had the Hiroshima bomb, but all this effort was put into the plutonium bomb. So do you think all of that effort did not contribute to the use of it in Nagasaki? That's an interesting question. It was 75 years ago last week that the U.S. became and still is the only country to use atomic weapons on another country in an act of war, in an act of destruction. And the lingering question, why? My name is Jim Wolgamuth and I'm here via Zoom for the most part with co-hosts Tom Gross and Harvey Bennett. We're the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. Uh, Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace by using our experiences and lifting our voices for the causes of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Our network is comprised of 140 chapters worldwide. Our show is on stations across the country. You can get a copy of the show by just going to our Facebook page, search Veterans for Peace Chapter 089, or go to SoundCloud and do the same thing. Um, all of our shows are at bit.ly slash capital letters VFP, then the word radio hour. So bit.ly slash VFP radio hour. If you have any questions for us, send us a text at 703-403-6135. So the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. As I mentioned, this is the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the only two atomic weapons ever to be used in war on another people's. And we will get to that. But first, friend of the show, friend of Veterans for Peace, friends of Chapter 089, Hector Black passed away. And we just want to get a few words from the chapter president, Joey King, about Hector. We will be doing and dedicating a whole show to Hector over the next couple of weeks. Here's Joey. Hector Black was the most Christ-like man I have ever met in my entire life. He lived a life of nonviolence like no other person. Um, went to World War II. Uh, he was in D-Day, I think, plus three, something like that. Uh, went across Europe, was discharged in uh, 45, and then 46, he went across the country to uh, meet the people he had been trying to kill the year before. I asked him when he got his FBI file started, and he said 1948 when he joined the John Reed Society, which was a organization that I don't think exists anymore, but they were named after the uh, uh, person featured in the movie Red that was played by um, uh, Warren Beatty. In the uh, 1960s, he went into the inner cities uh, and taught uh, schools in Atlanta. 
uh, and uh, adopted a daughter there, uh, an African-American daughter, and uh, uh, worked in Martin Luther King while I was in Atlanta and um, did uh, a lot of work in that regard. So he joined Veterans for Peace, I want to say, about 15 years ago. was one of the charter members of uh, Chapter 89. And uh, that's about when I met him, maybe 12 years ago, something like that. Uh, and just, just never had anything but wonderful, wonderful dealings. One of the main things he did for our chapter was run a uh, counter-recruitment um, uh, table every month at the Cookville High School. And uh, he actually got on WTVF Channel 5 and a couple of other stations in Nashville for protesting because the principal wasn't going to let the, us in to do uh, counter-recruiting work when the, the law plainly states that we have to be allowed in there. And uh, he just, in his own nonviolent way, proceeded to uh, get uh, get his way and, and was there at that table every month, nine months out of the year uh, during school. And uh can't tell you how many times I worked that table, probably a dozen times with him, and uh, just always, just the people would come up to him and just, just, you know, teachers and principals and 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 students would just come up to him and talk, and and uh, he just had the most gentle demeanor uh, about him. Uh, probably the best known story about Hector, and you can Google this and find out a lot about it because it's been written up in a lot of Quaker magazines. But uh, his uh, adopt, uh, adopted daughter was <laughs> was killed, and uh, uh, in the courtroom uh, they had him up for the death penalty. The the defendant and Hector got before the jury and said, "I'm a Quaker. I don't believe in the death penalty, and um, I uh, hate what you did to my daughter, but I don't hate you." And uh, the jury granted Hector's wishes and gave the man life in prison. And every year at Christmas, Hector would uh, would send Christmas gifts to this man who had a very, very rough upbringing uh, filled with a lot of abuse and um, drug and alcohol abuse uh, as well. And um, he, uh, he, he, through Hector's example, was able to turn this murderer's life around. And he's uh, become apparently an exemplary uh, prisoner. Uh, in the Georgia penal system. I'm not sure if this man is still alive, but I know he was sending gifts as recently as a couple of years ago to this man at Christmas. But um, yeah, Hector, uh, his wife died about five years ago. She was a Hutterite. Um, and uh, Hutterites are uh, similar to a Mennonite or a uh, Amish person. And uh, so between those two, they really, really did a lot of work uh, uh, towards nonviolence and to make the world a better more peaceful place. And uh, uh, I will tell you one thing. I am certainly a far better man for having Hector Black in my life for the last 12 years. Hector was truly a credit to the species. And speaking of credits to the species, Veterans for Peace held its online conference last week and much of it centered around the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki what we can do to heal and what we can do to avoid. Uh, there was a number of great presentations and we want to highlight just a couple. And the first one is just about the horror. As part of the VFP conference, there was a lady who 
was describing a, a, a large variety of resources that are available to all of us with regard to the bombing of Hiroshima. And as part of her discussion, she went through a series of pictures in which she described what was in the picture. And I was thinking, wow, this is really intense, but can we talk about pictures on the radio? And thankfully her, her descriptions of the pictures uh, really convey um, what, what was being, what was being seen. And these pictures, these pictures were drawn not by artists, but they were drawn just by people who were in Hiroshima at the time. And they describe any number of horrors, any number of horrors, a little boy uh, running with his mom, but his mom can't keep up because she's in a kimono. And she gets swirled away in a, in a, in a firestorm. So here is Suguru Force from the VFP conference uh, talking about those pictures. She starts off with a little commentary about a video that she showed of Hiroshima in 1935. Okay, so as I said, this was taken in 1935, 10 years before the bomb. Uh, dropped over the sky of Hiroshima. And um, as you can see, it was a very vibrant uh, town, uh, manufacturing center of the uh, Chugoku region of Japan. And you can see such a mix mixture of people, you know, with the uh, modern Western style clothing and also like traditional uh, kimono type clothing as well. And um, when I see this video, I don't know, it just, it just kind of breaks my heart. Uh, it's, it's because uh, young girls walking around, so many like girls, you know, very like in you know, a fashionable uh, garbs walking around makes me think of uh, you know, students at my school. And when I was studying there, I often think, you know, about like uh, what it must have been like um, because these were ordinary girls. They just lived way back when in, you know, 1945. But if you can think of like teenage girls nowadays, uh, you know, if you know someone in your life, if you, if you have daughters who are teenagers, uh, these girls were not much different. Uh, of course, that was a wartime, so, you know, things were short, you know, like they didn't have a lot of things. But, you know, because like they wanted to uh, be fashionable, they did things like, you know, with the uh, uh, inside of their kimono, uh, they may get like a little remnant of fabric, which is like, you know, uh, colorful, uh, with the colorful patterns and stuff like that, and they they sewed it on onto their kimono so that they can just kind of uh, experience a little bit of their individuality in wartime. So 
they were like ordinary girls, you know, who liked chatting with friends and stuff like the hanging out and, and, you know, this happened. So I wanted to show you the contrast of the vibrant city and uh, this devastation uh, that happened after the bomb. And this was photographed by the US Army. Uh, most photos that we see nowadays, uh, you know, were taken by the US Army because um, as you can imagine, like there was no one who can take pictures, you know, uh, no Japanese can take pictures these days uh, in the devastated city. So now I'm gonna take you through the stories of Hibakusha. Um, so many people talk about uh, Pika Dawn. Pika means flash and dawn is the blast. So, but some people talk about, um, you know, they didn't actually hear the dawn, uh, the blast. They just saw the flash of light which was so bright that they were engulfed in this uh, flash. So this person, Shiro Tsukihara, uh, was age 16 at the time of the bombing. And uh, he painted this picture when he was age 73. And uh, uh, so when you go to Hiroshima Peace Memorial website, uh, Memorial Museum website, great thing about uh, the website and its resources is that so you can uh, not only borrow these uh, pictures, uh, there's like, you know, there are descriptions that come with it. Uh, so it specifies the uh, victim's age uh, when, you know, uh, when they were exposed to, to the bomb and where they were uh, from the hypocenter. So this person was, uh, you know, 2.4 miles from hypocenter. So uh, after the bomb, after the initial flash and blast, uh, many people lost consciousness. And when they came to, what they saw was a living hell. So this person, Masako Yoshiyama, she was age 13 at the time of the bombing, one mile from hypocenter, uh, just about where my school was and is. So he saw, I mean, she saw, uh, of the flames, you know, fires everywhere. And uh, somebody in a uh, fire screaming, it hurts, help. So that's the, that was the common sight that people, see, people saw. Another sight that was mentioned, that's mentioned often by the survivors, were the river and uh, uh, river full of bodies. Uh, people trying to escape from the heat and fire and also uh, people wanting to drink from the river. So uh, Yoshio Take Takaha Takahara was age 34 at the time of the bombing, 0.4 miles from hypocenter. So streets filled with roof tiles and pieces of wood were impassable, so everyone headed to the river. Some died and were swept away. So at the beginning of the presentation, you saw the video uh, footage and uh, there was a river and the river Otagawa uh, especially I mean there are several rivers in the city of Hiroshima but Otagawa is a um, kind of center uh, of Hiroshima people you know people in Hiroshima uh, and their life so they uh, tried to escape 
from the heat and also that they try to, you know, as, as um, Yoshio says, they were trying to, uh, you know, pass to the other side. So they, you know, get it, got into the river, but uh, many of them did not make it to the other side. Another thing that people saw, uh, you know, people who were like living beings, but uh, look like ghosts. Um, Kichisuke Yoshimura, age 18 at the time of the bombing, 2.6 miles from the hypocenter. Their clothes ripped to shreds, their skin hanging down. On the riverbank, I saw figures that seemed to be from another world. Ghost-like, their hair falling over their faces, their clothes ripped to shreds, their skin hanging. A cluster of these injured persons was moving wordlessly towards the outskirts. Another theme that we have from the Hibaksha, uh, uh, Hibaksha stories, black rain. So the black rain started to fall uh, about 30 to 40 minutes after the bomb. And uh, people who were really, uh, you know, hot and thirsty from the uh, fire and heat uh, started to drink the rain. And uh, of course, the rain was radioactive. So a lot of people had uh, internal um, exposure, uh, internal damage because of that. And uh, the common sight was, um, so I'm gonna show you like next several pictures, maybe like three, four drawings uh, has a common theme of uh, people not being able to help someone. Uh, because they were trying to run for their lives as well. So this drawing is titled, Mom. So Fujioka Hisayuki, uh, 12 at the age of the bombing, uh, he was at the 0 0.6, 0 0.9 miles from the hype center. Hurry, hurry, desperate to get away from the approaching fire, a mother holding her child by the hand was running, running, but not very successfully because of her long kimono. The mother let go of her child, shouting, run quickly and I'll catch up with you. At that very moment, a tornado-like swirl of fire engulfed and swallowed the mother. The child collapsed into tears, screaming, mom, mom. So another picture, uh, Shisako Sasaki, age 19, at the time of the bombing, 0 0.9 miles from Hype Center. I heard a very young girl shouting for help from a burning upstairs window. The memory still haunts me. Yoshinori Kato, 17 at the end of the bombing, uh, 1.2 miles from the hypocenter. The elementary school had collapsed completely and became engulfed in flames while its pupils remained trapped underneath. Help! I could hear the shouts squeezed out with all their remaining strength, but had no choice but to run from the falling sparks of fire. So um, I just have to point out, I want to point out that one of the things that survivors um, suffered from, uh, you know, one of the things that tormented them was uh, being unable to help someone and it's a common story uh, from the Hibaksha experience. 
um, and uh, you know that sight of uh, someone engulfed in flames or uh, being underneath of the uh, building uh, still haunt uh, many of them. So this is uh, Tomomi Yamasha, age 16, at the time of the bombing, 2.2 miles from uh, hypocenter. So the whole body was so deeply charred that the gender was unrecognizable, yet the person was weakly writhing. I had to avert my eyes from the unbearable sight, but it entrenched itself in my memory for the rest of my life. And the night came on August 6th. Uh, many people mentioned the, uh, the whole city of Hiroshima was in flame. Um, and uh, so this person was age eight at the time of the bombing, 1.6 miles from the hypocenter. And actually, I, I guess, does this drawing was uh, the dawn, the uh, the site of the you know dawn and uh, how the city looked, and the memory of that. Next morning, August seventh, a mother was calling her child from the bridge. The river underneath was full of dead children. Sueko Sumitomo, uh, Sumimoto was age thirty-seven at the time of the bombing. 0.4 mile from the hypocenter. Most of the area's victims were mobilized students of similar stature and all aged around 13 or 14. The dead children filled the river and the riverbank, some drifting downstream, bobbing up and down like floating white radishes. On each of the stone steps leading to the river were bodies of children who looked as if they had cascaded on top of each other. It was heartbreaking to see their young, innocent faces. There was also a mother calling her child. And uh, so next, including the previous one, next three, four pictures, a common theme is mother and child. So this picture was drawn by Kazuo Matsumuro. Uh, he drew this at age 61, but he was age 32 at the time of the bombing, 0.5 miles from hypocenter. Where shall I burn the body of my dead child? White maggots crawled in the face, burns of the child she carried on her back. She probably picked up the metal helmet as a receptacle for her child's bones. She had to walk quite a distance to find the combustible material for the fire. Mitsuko Taguchi was age 30 at the time of the bombing, 0.6 miles from the hypocenter. Carrying her child, she had probably been unable to outrun the flames. Her hair was standing on end. She still protected her child under her breast like a living person. Her eyes will open wide. I cannot forget that shocking sight. Shinsaku Koguchi was age 25 at the time of the bombing, 0.3 mile from hypocenter. Seeing the dead child made me see how the mother died. I could imagine the cries of pain, how they must have loathed to die. The story of death narrated by the pair froze my faculty to think. Stupefied, I stared at the bodies. I apologized about human sinfulness. 
to no one in particular. I simply could not live without burning myself with a portion of this alley. So another thing that's very common among Hibakusha, uh, the victims and survivors of the A-bomb experience, is the, uh, their guilt and the enormous, this enormous sense of loss of humanity that they experienced on that day. Um, so they witnessed something that's just unthinkable for humans to do uh, on another human beings. And also, you know, again, uh, being powerless in the uh, situation really, you know, um, gravely pained them. Uh, yeah, um, so that's the common experience. So next three, four pictures, the theme is people looking for loved ones. So Fumie Ishikawa was age 16 at the time of the bombing, 1.9 miles from hypocenter. I went around looking closely at anyone who had a build, build similar to my younger brother. I found one of his friends, Van, passed away at the entrance, but my younger brother wasn't there. Hisako Murata was age 29 at the time of the bombing, 3.1 mile from hypocenter. Dead children were laid in rows underneath straw mats on the veranda of a temple. An injured mother, looking distraught, was turning the mats over one by one in search of her child. Kiyomi Kono, age 14 at the time of the bombing, 0.9 mile from hypocenter. Corpses piled like lumber on the circular flower bed in front of the entrance to the Red Cross Hospital. Corpses of first and second year junior high students had been piled on each other like lumber. They had no sign of injury or burn. Their name tags read Second Hiroshima Junior. So these are the last two pictures on August 8th. Um, so basically, uh, just dead bodies after dead bodies um, on the street and uh, people remembering these sites. So there was her description of those pictures. Uh, and that's horrific enough, the descriptions. But remember, you can go online and find the resources she was talking about, those pictures. You go to Hiroshima Peace Memorial website and find, find the picture she described and find many more resources uh, about um, the bombing of Hiroshima. So with that, for me, there's always been a question about the bombs. At least the second one. And I found a video clip um, from DW called, Why Did the U.S. Drop the Second Bomb? And it's a report by Klaus Schur. This is a German production, which includes the voices of historians Peter Kuznick, Martin Sherwin of George Mason, Akira Kimura, Joshi Hasekawa, 
And they all asked the question, why the second bomb? And they ask other questions. So here's the abridged version. The first nuclear explosion in history was witnessed by those in charge of the project from nine kilometers away. Afterward, a report was released saying a munitions depot in the desert had exploded. Was it a topic that this would affect not only military targets, but wipe out the whole city? Oh, of course, yes. From, from the test shots of the bomb, it obviously, they, they knew the extent of the destruction. The heads of the project posed at what was left of the vaporized steel tower, physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer and General Leslie Groves. But there were also critical voices in Los Alamos. There were many scientists here who thought that we should do a demonstration for the Japanese. And they, they signed a petition, and Oppenheimer stopped the petition from going forward to the government. The critics remained isolated. They read later that America had no bombs to waste. So why did it have to drop two bombs within days of each other? We had two different kinds of bombs. We had the uranium bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, and we had the plutonium bomb that we dropped at Nagasaki. Had we had a thorium bomb, we probably would have taken out a third city. But it was important to test the plutonium bomb from the standpoint of U.S. policymakers and military strategists, because that was the kind that we were going to bring into effect increasingly over the next period. The effort that went into this was the primary uh, uh, challenge that uh, the scientists faced at Los, at Los Alamos. And the implosion device was a much more efficient way of exploding either uranium or plutonium. And that was going to be the future. At the start, the plan was only to use the bomb on military installations, but later, dual targets became the preferred term. The target wasn't arms factories, but entire cities. That both raids were planned for the early morning also suggests that they wanted to strike when as many people as possible were out of doors. When U.S. and Soviet leaders met at the Potsdam Conference, Stalin already knew about the nuclear bomb project, thanks to espionage, but he didn't show his hand. U.S. President Harry S. Truman had hoped that Stalin would sign an ultimatum to Japan, but he feared that Stalin might refuse because of a neutrality agreement between the Soviets and the Japanese. When Stalin told Truman that he was coming to the war, Truman writes in his diary, Stalin will be in the Jap war by August 15th. Finny Japs when that occurs. So Truman knew that the Soviet entry was going to be determinative. American intelligence had been saying that repeatedly for months. But then Truman suddenly deviated from his plan and even went as far as hindering Stalin from signing. Why? Because on July 16th, Truman received the decisive report from General Groves in Los Alamos. Results exceed expectations, wrote Groves, and what counts is the battle test. 
when Truman received the first news of successful detonation of atomic bomb Los Alamos, he wrote in a diary, just a real time, right? I got big news, big news, atomic bomb successful, and this is an enormous destructive capacity. It is so enormous, so powerful, that the, that the steel tower, 60 feet long, melted. And then immediately, you know, melted, right? And immediately after this, but we are going to use this against the against military target. We are a civilized nation. We are not going to use it against women, children. I mean, can you imagine that the powerful weapon you're going to drop in the middle of the city, you're, gonna, you're not going to affect you know, the women and children? It's already, already there's a, the, the process of denial uh, uh, started even in the Truman. The historian finds it striking that the ultimatum to Japan's government, the Potsdam Declaration, had no deadline, and that Truman removed a provision to retain the emperor, even though the West knew how the Japanese revered the imperial dynasty. Tokyo's diplomats were by then turning to a possible mediator who appeared neutral to them, Joseph Stalin. Stalin had a conversation with uh, Truman. He says, we have to lull Japanese to sleep. And so that, you know, of course, that from, from Stalin's point of view, it is necessary to delay the Japanese surrender so that, so that uh, the Soviet Union could, could participate. And Truman also wanted to delay so that so that the United States can drop, you know, could, could drop the bomb. They flew at high altitude, out of range of Japanese anti-aircraft. Aircraft were also deployed to observe the weather, and before they dropped the bomb, the technicians released radiosondes to record the blast wave and radiation and transmit them back to the aircraft. This also made it clear how much and in how many ways they wanted to measure the effect of the new bomb. The news that Hiroshima had been wiped out reached President Truman at sea. He was returning to America from the Potsdam Conference. He got the report that the city of Hiroshima had been wiped off the map. And he jumped up and said, this is the greatest thing in history. He was so joyful, you know, he was so excited. He could not restrain himself. He was jumping up and down. Uh, why was he so excited? Uh, you know, he's not, he is a decent man. You know, uh, well, he didn't really cherish killing, you know, other people. But I think my interpretation of this uh, happiness is that it is exactly the way that he planned. Managed to drop the bomb before Soviets entered the fray. Truman imagined he'd won the race against time that had started in Potsdam. Stalin also believed Truman had outmaneuvered him and was frustrated until his hopes were rekindled thanks to new reports from Japan. Stalin came back to Moscow on August 5th, right? And he, had, he resumed his frantic activities, obviously preparing for the war. Uh, and then... Uh, August 6th, if you take a look at appointment book, 
blank. And that will show you the, the extent of the shock. He thought, game is, game is up. You know, we, uh, we, you know, that we lost, right? And he was sure that the Japan would surrender. Well, and then there's approach from Japanese ambassador. And this is a, how about, uh, you know, uh, how about Soviet reply to uh, mediation? And then she immediately jumped to action, immediately ordered the attack, I mean, moved up the attack for about 48 hours. So why didn't the shock of Hiroshima force Japan to surrender? Some historians say it wasn't a shock for Tokyo. Civilian suffering had never been a reason for Japan's supreme military leaders to change tack. So why should they do it now? Hiroshima was simply another city that was destroyed. There were 68 cities destroyed, I think, prior to Hiroshima. So this was another one. Well, it happened to be by one bomb. Okay, but the same effect. Um, the real blow to the Japanese was the entry of the Soviet Union. But instead of waiting to see the effects of a Soviet attack, America seemed to be in a hurry to drop the second bomb. That was the plutonium model known as Fat Man. Because Japan continued to ignore demands for capitulation, Truman believed the step was justified. He warned Japan that it would be struck by a reign of ruin. The mission was plagued by one glitch after another. The aircraft didn't have enough fuel. A third aircraft failed to appear. The planned target, the port of Kokura, and the secondary target, Nagasaki, were both covered by clouds. That Japan's air defenses didn't even see the bombers coming. Most of the doctors and nurses were killed in the bombing. The facilities were destroyed. The medicines were minimal at best. They were using any kind of home remedies they could find to treat those victims who were horribly burned. Japan formally surrendered on board a U.S. battleship in Tokyo Bay. The capitulation document was signed on September 2, 1945. General Douglas MacArthur then became the country's military governor. Japan's foreign minister represented the government at the ceremony. In the end, it was Emperor Hirohito who ordered his squabbling war council to capitulate. The American leadership rejoiced, claiming that the atomic bombs had brought peace. Well, the official version that uh, both bombs were necessary in order to bring the Japanese around to surrender uh, is uh, not borne out by the facts and the chronology of uh, the surrender process. The Japanese had been trying to surrender for weeks, if not months, uh, but they weren't going to surrender under unconditional surrender, and they weren't going to surrender as long as the emperor's life was at stake. Uh, they hoped that they would get the Soviet Union to mediate between the United States and Japan for better surrender terms. They weren't able to get that because the Soviet Union declared war on Japan on August 8th, and that was the end of that idea. 
Emperor Hirohito was spared a war crimes trial, but he had to give up his divine status. He suggested to his people that the bombing was the reason for Japan's defeat. That was advantageous for him because it deflected the issue of his responsibility for the war. Both he and Truman adhered to the myth that the bombs decided the war. And Truman wrote in the memoirs the decision to drop the bomb was a very, very heavy. I just wanted to avoid. Well, if he wanted to avoid, then why didn't he invite Stalin to sign the proclamation and, and when he knew that the Japanese government rely on Moscow, right? And secondly, they knew that the Japanese government desperately wanted to know the fate of the emperor and the emperor system. Why didn't they promise the Japanese, Japanese government that, you know, that's, that's a, there's a possibility there, right? And those two alternatives were consciously avoided. And so that's, uh, that's why I think it's, uh, uh, I would argue that that Boston proclamation, when, when it, was, it was issued, it's already decided that they are going to drop it. U.S. military newsreels show that Japan had already been flattened before the Nagasaki bomb was dropped. Just after the end of the war, they reported that nearly all major cities from Osaka to Tokyo had been destroyed. Japan's fleet had been decimated in the ports, and the country was no longer able to fight. In the words of the announcer, scenes like this proved that Japan was no longer able to wage war, even before the bombs were dropped. Scenes like these leave no doubt that Japan was thoroughly beaten before the atomic bomb. In fact, you have to remember that six of the seven five-star admirals and generals who got their fifth star during World War II are on record of saying that the atomic bombings were either militarily unnecessary or morally reprehensible. And, and probably the most outspoken was Truman's own chief of staff, Admiral William Leahy, who said that he categorized this with the most atrocious things that had ever been done. He says war was not, cannot be made that way. And he also said uh, that Truman Garin told me that we would only hit military objectives, he says. Then we went ahead and killed as many women and children as we could, which was just what they wanted all along. By the first anniversary of the victory, when Americans looked back, there was no longer any doubt about the rightness of dropping the bombs. According to this newsreel account, the greatest of all wars ended a year ago, and it was not because the so-called Japs had too few weapons or soldiers. The reporter speaks of large armies and weapons arsenals, but says that just as the Japanese were ready for the final battle, the first atomic bomb was dropped. They were stunned, but still hesitated. Then three days later, the second bomb fell on Nagasaki. So three days later, another bomb fell on Nagasaki. That was the final blow. So they surrendered. It's perfectly understandable. I mean, the United States was the only country that has used atomic bombs. It used them on what Robert Oppenheimer, the director of Los Alamos, called an essentially defeated enemy. Uh, this was our good war. 
We were fighting fascism in Europe. We were fighting militarism in the Far East. And to end the war with something that uh, uh, has a negative context, something that puts a black mark on this war, is something that the United States can't quite absorb. And so it was justified by the idea that uh, we would have, uh, have lost a million, a million troops in an invasion. There was not going to be an invasion. The Japanese were going to surrender clearly before uh, November 1st, 1945. The, the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission that was set up by the United States after the war was there to study the victims, not to treat them. The, in fact, if they died, their remains were often sent to the United States for further testing, which is why so many of the Japanese see themselves as having been guinea pigs for the American experiment. I have a lot of friends who are survivors, and they felt that many of them feel that they were treated terribly in the aftermath. And many were humiliated. They were forced to get up on those stages, get naked in front of this auditorium full of doctors so they could be further examined. Many of them were young at the time. Some were teenagers. Uh, it left a lot of very, very deep scars. So the American role in the aftermath, I think, was pretty regrettable at best, criminal at worst. I believe we were really something like lab animals for the Americans. The bomb had already been dropped on Hiroshima. Building the plutonium bomb would have been senseless if they didn't use it. So they had to do it quickly before Japan surrendered. So does that mean the Americans were war criminals and are the Japanese the victims? No, they say. That would be too easy. It's often said that we're the victims. But we were the victims of two perpetrators. We were America's victims and victims of our own wartime government. Japan was to blame for the war, and also to blame because it did not surrender much earlier. We ask the historians one last question. Seventy years after the tragedies of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where do you place the blame for dropping the atomic bombs? By bombing cities, and not only in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, America had crossed a threshold leading to a war on civilians. Before that, only Hitler in Guernica, Spain, and the Japanese in China did that. And the West called it barbarism. But then the British did the same thing in Dresden and the Americans in Tokyo. And with the two atom bombs, they ultimately went beyond the point of no return. When I was very young, I said, perhaps there's an argument for the first bomb, but the second one was clearly unnecessary. Um, but the more I learned uh, with the 
uh, evidence that has come out both in the United States and in Japan and in the Soviet Union, uh, it's quite clear that neither bomb was necessary. Neither bomb was necessary. Neither bomb was necessary. So Tom Harvey and I had a nice little discussion about the history to politics, the U.S. culpability, but Zoom didn't work. So Harvey called later and wanted to share his personal story about visiting Nagasaki while he was on shore leave in Japan in 1968. Somehow noticed that uh, there was a train uh, you could take to Nagasaki which was maybe a couple-hour train ride, or even less. So that kind of piqued my interest. I said, I think I'd like to see that. So we're talking 1968, right? Yep. Uh, the bomb dro- dropped in 1945. You're talking 23 years. Yeah. It passed. All right. 23 years ago was 1997, folks. Train. Not that long yeah, ago. It, it wasn't that long. So I went and uh, by myself, had, had civvies on, uh, which would make me uh, uh, right incognito, right? Now, they could spot an American from half a mile away, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. But uh, I found the uh, Peace Museum there at uh, close to ground zero. Ground Zero was actually a cathedral. Uh, it was the uh, it was the largest Christian church in the Far East. Uh, it's Catholic cathedral, and I thought that was interesting. Um, but uh, anyway, the visit to the Peace Museum uh, was a little strange. I felt very self conscious. I had this big clock there and stopped at 11.02, which is when the bomb detonated. Um, they had a peace museum. It wasn't uh, anything real fancy, but uh, they did have a lot of photos and uh, exhibits. Basically, all of them were in Japanese. So, And none of the staff spoke English, so it was all kind of uh, hand signals and facial expressions. But they, they really kind of took me under their wing to the extent that they could with the language barrier and just led me through. And uh, they just kept uh, nodding and smiling to me and you know, making these hand gestures of sort of uh, peace and graciousness and stuff. And I just felt like they were really giving me some kind of special treatment. And I thought, we're the ones who dropped this thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it wasn't until you know, much later in my life that I kind of, you know, the light went on and I realized they were seeing me as a damaged person, too. But having been, yeah, you know, an American did, did this to them, you know. I didn't do it, but my country did it. And so they, they seemed to have a a concern for my emotional well-being, which seems kind of backwards, but uh, all they wanted to really talk about was peace. They showed all these paper cranes, and uh, the whole message of it was 
what they got from this whole experience was, you know, we must end war. <clears throat> anyway, um, uh, I spent a couple hours there, and then uh, I took the train back. I didn't walk around around the south too much, but uh, <clears throat> I just felt um, like uh, something pretty important had happened being there, but I wasn't sure what it was. Uh, <clears throat> and I didn't give it a whole lot of thought after that. Uh, I knew that the Japanese you know, did not allow nuclear weapons or ships with nuclear weapons uh, there. Uh, anyway, uh, after I uh, left the Navy, it wasn't really until uh, the 1980s, living in Nashville. Um, at that time, I was in, sort of in an anti-war frame of mind. I had volunteered at a GI coffee house in, you know, outside Port Campbell for a while. Uh, I'd gotten involved in the left-wing politics. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, in the 80s, there was, there was a groundswell just a, uh, of concern about uh, nuclear conflict because Reagan was the president and he was referring to Soviet Union's evil empire and uh, you know, <clears throat> both the Soviet Union and the U.S. had huge nuclear stockpiles on hand triggers. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, there was a big uh, freeze movement to, to freeze the production and testing of nuclear weapons. And it got a huge following. There were big demonstrations, I think, all over the country. And then I remember they even had a special TV special called The Day After. I don't even remember that. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, the scenario was the day after a, a nuclear uh, attack. <clears throat> so people were very sensitized to that, and then people got their hopes up with these uh, arms control talks with Reagan and Gorbachev and, and uh, Iceland. And I don't think at the time we realized how close they came to dismantling all their nuclear weapons. I know. And it all hinged on the fact that Reagan refused to give up his Star Wars plan. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, with an opportunity missed, because who knows if we'll ever have a chance like that again. <clears throat> and, uh, but they did have a, uh, a, a conference there in Nashville around uh, the, the nuclear issue and manning the bomb. <clears throat> we held it to the Sheraton Hotel, kind of across the street from Union Station. Mm -hmm. Kind of a funky place. They didn't have a lot of money, but uh, we had some speakers, pretty good speakers, and uh, then they had this uh, photo exhibit that uh, just blew me away. It was all these photographs, large photographs taken. I think it was Hiroshima <clears throat> taken by an army photographer, the first one sent there to document. And I, I'm assuming it was probably after the uh, surrender of Japanese, which would have been you know, just a few weeks right. out from, from the bombing. 
<clears throat> so there were still horrible things to see. And uh, he, had, his name was Joe O'Donnell. He actually was from Nashville. And he had taken, he had two cameras. He had his own camera and he had the his military camera. So every picture he took of the army, he took the same picture for himself, his camera. So he had <clears throat> duplicates of everything. But he didn't trust him. <laughs> Once he gave him to the army, he didn't know what would happen. Exactly. He was right. He, he was right. You know, they can't. They either burned him or buried him or something. But they never saw the light of day after that. And and after he got out, he couldn't look at them. He just put them away himself. He, he, negatives. So uh, and he told the story at this conference of. of uh, that this was the first public exhibit of these photographs. And and the reason for it was he had gone on a retreat. Uh, uh, I guess he'd always, you know, had this terrible thing in his mind. He also had some kind of cancer, which could have been related to radiation exposure. Yeah, just and there for to, days, and that's it. Yeah, he went to a retreat up in uh, Kentucky, the Sisters of Loretto, up there, and in their main entrance area of their convent, there was this huge uh, montage of the crucifixion. Cross, Jesus up there, and from across the room, he couldn't tell much about it. He got up closer, and he realized the entire montage, it was probably at least six or eight feet high, long, was made up of photographs of uh, the death and destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, people, you know, schools, everything. And it was all shaped into this thing. And he was just so deeply, uh, it triggered him, you know. It just took him back and, uh, and he realized while he was there, he could not continue to hide his pictures. You know, the last thing he wanted to do was look at those again, but <clears throat> he came back from there and he decided he was going to do it. He got his old films and made all these photographs and enlarged them, and we got to see them. And I, I don't know whatever happened to those. He died a few years later. And his name was Joe O'Donnell. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> so that's an interesting Nashville connection to all this. So we will leave Harvey and his story right there. But isn't it interesting the lasting impact that visit in 1968 had on Harvey? So with that, to end the show, you always have a song. And in this case, nothing really fit this somber show. Until I remembered that the survivors sang a song during the documentary. These people were children back then. They are the ones who are still alive. Even today, they ask why this bomb had to be dropped, wiping their city from the face of the earth. They sing, do you hear the victims' voices? Do they still reach your ears? Please world, never let this happen again. Life, love, Everything burns up. Remember, world, 
remember us, the victims of the atomic bombs. Our world has been cloaked in mourning ever since.